You heard about that guy, hunting season's coming up. He um, decided to go hunting. His wife started saying, well, I want to go hunting with you. And no, yes, no. And they went back and forth. Finally said, all right, you can go hunting with me. And he puts her along the trail, and he goes up about a, you know, a few hundred yards and said, now, just shoot something. I'll come and help you. So he's there a while, and all of a sudden he hears bang, 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 bang. And he starts running back to see what happened. And as he's approaching, he hears her arguing with the gentleman. She's saying, it's my deer. And he says, lady, this is my animal. It's my deer. And they're going back and forth. And finally, he arrives and, and he hears the guy say, all right, lady, it's your deer. Just let me get my saddle off him first. <laughs> all, right. all right, we're looking at Joshua today in the Old Testament. We haven't been here in the Old Testament in about a month, but we're back there today. Joshua chapter 2, and I've entitled this Rahab the Saint, because so much we hear about Rahab and refer, refer to her as Rahab the harlot or prostitute or whatever, yet she's a saint, and she became a saint by having faith in Yahweh, the Lord, the, the God of Israel, and so this is a great, great portion of scripture. So, so much archaeological evidence, in fact, if you ever get to go to the Holy Land, you can see the city of Jericho, it's not much today. But when John Garstang in 1930 excavated, he found a section of wall that was still standing. And of course, we know that the city collapsed in its entirety except for the section of wall, which on top was the house of Rahab, and who is now, as I said, a saint. Let's pray. Let's stand, let's stand and read a couple of verses today first, and then we'll pray. I'm sorry. Chapter 6, we'll read two verses out of chapter 6. We're going to study chapter 2. We'll go back to chapter 6 later. But uh, I didn't want to read 24 verses. So we're going to look at chapter 6, verse 17. 6, 17. And the city shall be accursed, even it, and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Verse 25. And Joshua saved Rahab. The harlot alive, and her father's household, and all that she had, and she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Let's pray. God bless us. As we take a look in the book for a walk in the world, that we'll learn something, Lord, today, that will be motivated to change, that will be emotionally challenged or stirred, but most of all, that we today, as I stand to share your word, that I feed the sheep, and so they leave here satisfied and and uh, encouraged to ch dive into the scriptures and study day by day throughout the week. Bless us, God. We're so undeserving. We thank you that we haven't uh, lost anyone due to the virus. We pray for some today that are out uh, with the virus, others that haven't come back because of the virus. Lord, we hate this virus, but we know you're still in control. We don't understand everything. We just say, come Lord Jesus. And Lord, in the meantime, take care of us. Thank you for your wonderful uh, provision of everything in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Joshua originally was named Ashri. And that means to save. And of course, the word Jah, our word Jehovah, was added to that by Moses. Moses changed his name, said, I'm going to call you Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. And of course, we believe in Jehovah. Even though it's a word that was used to replace the word Yahweh, we find it eight times in the Old Testament. More often than, that, often than that, we find the translation Lord with all capital letters, which is the same thing. 
They both are used to, uh, uh, in the place of Yahweh. And so uh, Joshua, which means Jehovah saves, in the New Testament, the transliteration is Jesus saves or Jesus. And he's our savior. And we find that in the book of Hebrews. But we know that uh, he wrote most of this book. We're told that in the last chapter. But then he didn't write the conclusion because he had died and somebody finished as that often is the case. It's been 38 years since they left Egypt. And uh, they're about to enter the the promised land and they're going to conquer their first city. Remember, Joshua and Caleb were sent out by God, told Moses, send them out. So they were sent out by Moses to spy out the land. And they're the only two people left that, that, that are, were the, excuse me, they're the only two people that are still part of Israel. All the others that crossed the Red Sea have died. They've wandered for 40 years. So the entire nation are all people who are a lot younger. And, and Joshua and Caleb are now the leaders. And so they send out spies. And you know, of course, this great story. You know the rest of the story. Uh, they're sent out uh, to spy out the city of Jericho. Jericho. And they had faith and they had courage, Joshua and Caleb. And so did the spies they sent out. But the word courage is, is used more often in this book than any other book because we're encouraged to have courage by Joshua. So we look here at verse 1. And according to Josephus, they're about seven miles outside of the city. And the spies had been sent. And uh, I, I love this line. Someone said, faith doesn't release us from our obligation. Faith doesn't release us from our obligation. They still sent out spies. And they were still going to have a military uh, conquest, but they didn't realize God would say, no, I'm going to take care of Jericho. And God did fight the battle for them. Jesus said, sometimes the children of the world are wiser than the children of God. And that's the case. Sometimes we don't act upon our faith. James says faith without works is dead. And so we need to be busy about our father's business. Calvin once said, he who hath fixed the limits of our life hath also entrusted us with the care of it. So here's Jericho. This city's an eight square, uh, eight square, eight acre city, not square mile, eight acre city. It's not very big when you think of Nineveh and some of the other massive cities, Babylon. This is only eight acres. It's surrounded by walls 30 feet high. The outer wall was six feet wide and the inner wall was 12 feet wide. And normally they had a moat, a, a water trench around it. And uh, this was their protection. They would be secure inside. You know, God says, the Bible says God is our refuge. He's a place we can flee to safety. But these cities, they, they felt safe. When there was a threat, all the people who lived outside the city would then all of a sudden pour into the city and they'd shut the gates and they were all safe inside. And so that's what the city was. Siege warfare was a common thing. They would surround a city and they would uh, sometimes stay a couple of years outside the city, making the people starve or or whatever, run out of things, and the people would have to finally come out, and then the armies would come in. These cities were often built above rivers, and on one end, of course, you get your drinking water, and the other end, you, middle of your bay, and the other end, you use as your sewage. And so they, they uh, had these cities. They were really spectacular and, and fascinating to study and to read about. Siege warfare, the enemy would come, and they would try and use catapults to get 
uh, knock the walls down. They would, uh, they would try and uh, get ladders and rush the wall and climb up. And the inhabitants inside would be on the top throwing hot liquids and rocks and shooting them and spearing them. And I mean, this would go on for years. One time we find in scripture where the enemy dammed up the riverbed, rerouted the river, took a couple of years to dig and reroute a whole river. And then they marched in the riverbed to get in the city. And so this was quite fascinating stuff. And here Joshua now sends these spies out and they're going to now conquer Jericho, the first city and the first battle of a seven-year conquest, the city of Jericho. And we pick up now in chapter 2, and we pick up in verse 1, or 2-1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, you know he didn't even have, even have parents. Isn't that sad? The son of Nun. That's a bad joke. He sent out uh, two, uh, of two men uh, to spy secretly, saying, Go view the city, even Jericho. And they went out and came into a harlot's house, named Rahab, and lodged there. They stayed there in a harlot's house. Most of these towns had hotel-like places you could stay, and often there were houses of prostitutes. And that's exactly what she was, a prostitute. In fact, look at Leviticus chapter uh, 21, if you will. Leviticus chapter 21. Well, look how this Hebrew word is translated in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 21 in verse 4. Now, the words translated throughout Scripture as someone who's adulterous, who commits whoredom, who goes a whoring. I mean, it's just plain that she was indeed a harlot. Some scholars, very few, have ignorantly said, well, no, she, she wasn't a harlot. She wasn't a prostitute. That means something different. But all Hebrew scholars tell us, no, clearly she was a prostitute. She was a harlot. 21.4, but he shall not defile himself, being a chief man among his people to profane himself, and I'm in, um, I'm in, I'm looking at verse 7 is the verse I want, not verse 4. They shall not take a wife that is a whore. It's the same exact Hebrew word. Now that's pretty plain, isn't it? You know, she was a whore. In fact, I, 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 one, one writer said that Hamilton called her a whore with a heart. Because now she started to study uh, the God of Israel. And she's heard about what they did crossing, you know, the, the Red Sea and, and their conquest. And, and so she has this testimony that she believes in the God of Israel. She's a beautiful example of the woman of Luke chapter 7. You remember that woman? That was such an awesome story. We looked at a parable and referred to her one night long ago. And that woman who approached Jesus and fell at his feet sobbing and used a year's worth of her salary to, to anoint him with expensive perfume. And Simon, who's supposed to be a man of God, was there, and he didn't welcome Jesus like that. And Jesus said, she's more righteous than you are because she is continually kissing my feet. She just kept kissing him, and kissing him is what the grammar there is. And so that's another example, the woman at the well. There's so many great examples in Scripture. In fact, it's fascinating to me that we find uh, Rahab listed in Hebrews chapter 11. We call that the hall of faith, the hall of faith. And the, you could say the hall of fame of scripture. In that same chapter, we find a murderer. We find an adulterer. We find Jacob the deceiver. And we find Rahab. We find someone who committed suicide. All in the hall of faith. What does that tell us? It tells us with the grace of God, we can finish well. We can be children of God, saints of God, and heroes of the faith. Never look back to your past. We talked about 
those three little creatures, remember in a sermon a while back, how, how uh, all of them couldn't take flight without certain conditions. And, and we said sometimes we look down because of uh, our discouragement. We look down because of some things in our lives. But we also look back to our past mistakes. And we can't look back because we are now in Christ. We're right with God in Christ because of what Jesus did on Calvary. So forget your past and move forward. You can be a hero of the faith by God's grace because God forgives it all. Isn't that great about God? You know, he doesn't just forgive, he forgets. Even when you make mistakes after being a believer, once you confess it, it's gone. And so here she is, this wonderful person, Rahab, who, who did some great things for God. Think about her and think about Rahab and think about Achan. Think about the difference. Achan, of course, we know was an Israelite and she was a Canaanite. She was a prostitute. He was the head of a large Jewish family. She would have died or she should have died, we'd say. He should have lived but died. Uh, she hid the spies on the roof. He, he hid the treasure in the ground. Remember that story? Her nation was destroyed and his nation's victorious. But look at her life. She's in the lineage of Christ. She is in the lineage of Christ. Jesus Christ's lineage is clearly laid out in Scripture. All the way from David and Solomon and Nathan down two lines to Mary and Joseph. And we find in that line Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the harlot. We find, of course, Tamar. Remember that story. We find Bathsheba. We find Ruth the Moabite. All those people in the lineage of Christ. And of course, that just tells us that Jesus Christ had to be born of a virgin. Because all that sin, we know sin passes from generation to generation. But here are these wonderful women that are in, in history for time. And yet we look at Achan and his whole family's cut off. Every one of them died. Didn't leave anything for the future. But we see here so many things. We see God's mercy. We see God's grace. We see God's providence. Someone once said, and, and I wrote this down, the spies were there for Rahab just as much as Rahab was there for the spies. You know, they were there to bring a message to Rahab, and she was there to protect them. God was sovereign in both of those matters. In verse 4, we find her, we find that she lied, and then she would hide the spies. She lied. A lot of people lie in Scripture. Abraham lied. Isaac lied. The result was uh, they taught a generation how to lie, and Jacob was a liar. On a regular basis, he was a deceiver. And, and we find so many that lied. You know, of course, Jews lied to hide people in Europe from Hitler. And we know the midwives lied, and Moses was protected. Some say, well, this is justified because it's a wartime act and we can have a good discussion on whether this lie is justified or not. And I, you know, and I have different ideas on that, but the bottom line is she's in the hall of faith and Israel was spared. And so we find that God blessed her and rewarded her. Look at verse nine, verse nine of our text, chapter two and verse nine. <clears throat> says here, and she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land. Now that word Lord is the word Yahweh. So she's calling his name here. The scribes, when they translated, didn't want Yahweh in scripture because they feared it so much. So they put Lord in translation. And they made up a word Jehovah. You know, Jehovah, we've told you before, is made up the consonants 
of Yahweh in the accent marks of Adonai. It's a substitute word because they feared writing Yahweh. And so translators even give us the word Lord. Only eight times it's Jehovah, all the other times it's Lord. This is Yahweh. So she calls out the name of the God of Israel. Think about that. She said, I know Yahweh hath given you the land. I know the Lord's given you the land. What an awesome thing for her to say. I love 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. I love that assurance. She had that. She knew somehow she had heard about Israel. And later it tells us she heard about their, their past. Somehow she heard this name, Yahweh, and she put her faith in Yahweh. She said, I know. Here's a Canaanite that says, I know God's given you this land. We have Arabs today that don't recognize that God's given them the land. But she recognized that. I was in a conference up in, uh, in, uh, in um, Kentucky at a Christian camp, and I was uh, one of the speakers there. I, but before me, a Palestinian Christian spoke, wonderful, lovely man. But he got up there and said something that was wrong. He said, uh, Brother Dan, uh, he didn't say brother, he said to the people, I'll tell you the rest later. He said, uh, the, the, the covenant with Abraham's not an everlasting covenant. The land belongs to the Palestine today. And right away, the camp director comes over to me. He says, you got to get up there and straighten that out. So he said, that's wrong. I said, I know it's wrong. I said, well, you take care of that tonight. Well, I'm not prepared to take care of that, but God prepared me quickly. And I got up there and I preached on the everlasting covenant with him sitting out there. So it was quite awkward. But he's a wonderful man, but he just didn't understand the word everlasting means everlasting. You know, when God gave you eternal life, it means God gave you eternal life. And, and that, that's eternal. When you make mistakes, you're not going to lose eternal life. It's eternal. And when you read those wonderful words in Scripture, just rest assured. These things have I written unto you that you know. And we know we have eternal life because of the Word and the promise of the Word. And now she realizes that. And she says here, and that your verse 9, and that, that your terror is fallen upon us. That's an interesting word. If, and, of course, we don't have a lot of English words that have come from Hebrew, just a handful. We usually go, uh, we, we go to the Greek Old Testament if we want to know what the Greek words are. And this is in the Greek, the word phobia in the Septuagint. Remember when the Ethiopian eunuch was coming into town on a chariot and Philip, he's reading, he's reading that Greek Old Testament. That was the language of the day. And Philip jumps up there and says, do you understand what you're reading there in Isaiah 53? And he said, no, I need someone to explain it to him. And he explained it to him. He was reading the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, the word fear here is the word, the, the Greek word phobia. So they were terrified of Israel. All the Canaanites were like, oh man, did you hear what happened? The Red Sea dried up and the armies of the great pharaohs of Egypt, the great pharaoh, they drowned. And so they're just really, really panicking. They're afraid. Look what she says in verse 11. And as soon as we heard these things, to, well, let's back up. Verse 10 talks about them crossing the Red Sea and the kings of the Amorites and so forth being utterly destroyed. You know, they had battles prior to entering the uh, promised land. And we know, that, uh, we know that Joshua was an experienced commander because he had fought battles already in Kadesh Barnea and other places. So she says, we, we heard all that and how God utterly destroyed them. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. 
Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For, look what she says, the Lord your God. She says, Yahweh your Elohim. Isn't that something? She says that. She's, she already knows the names of God the Father. She knows the names of uh, you know, Jesus Christ before we're given that name in the New Testament. I like what Proverbs says. What is his name and what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. Nobody knew the name Jesus till Bethlehem. But, you know, he, he's, he appears quite often in the Old Testament. He's in the fiery furnace and we find him all the time, don't we? The Lord. And so she says... We, we know about the Lord your God. And she says here, I love in verse 11, he is God in heaven above. I love that song, he is God alone. He is God alone. There's no one else besides him. He is God alone. He's the one true God. There are false gods. You know, Satan was a false god. There's gods, in, and the Bible says Satan's the, the, the god of this world. And he's, but he's a false God. But there is one true God, and he is God alone. And that's Yahweh, our Lord. That's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day he'll come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee will bow. I can't imagine that day. I don't want to see people bow begging for mercy because they're going to hell. I, I want to see people bow because they're going to praise him. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bow and just praise him. Can you imagine that? How exciting that is going to be? And so we, we, we see that she is a believer. There's no doubt. Now, therefore, verse 12, I pray she's to swear that you're going to show me a kindness. I'm paraphrasing. Show me this kindness. And that's that Hebrew word, chesed. Chesed is how you say it. And she says, I want that, 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 that loving kindness, that uh, consistent love of God. Please show me that. Spare my family and I. Show me that kind of kindness. That's the love that doesn't let go. And we find that's a very rich word. We find that love as the love that Hosea had for Gomer. You know that. And it's a love that God has for Israel. It's the love we're supposed to have for our wives. That's the Old Testament love. It's equivalent to agape in the New Testament, isn't it? Had a couple in our church used to call it guppy love. They said, we have guppy love. I thought that's cute. But uh, that agape love. And so she says, show me this kindness. And she says here in uh, verse 12 that you will also show kindness unto my father's house. She said, I've shown you kindness. Please show me kindness and give me a true token. That's an interesting word. The Hebrew word is translated two pages over in chapter 4 and verse 6. If you want to turn there, it's translated here in 4.6, a sign. Says that this may be a sign among you. That's the same Hebrew word, translated sign, this word true token. And guess how else it's translated in the Bible? The word rainbow is a sign. Did you know the rainbow is a sign to us? We are never going to have a worldwide flood. There's going to be a worldwide fire, but we're going to be gone. But God will not destroy the flood. God gave a sign. And so she says, I, I want some sort of a sign. And we find here that she wants a promise of, of mercy, you know, that God would protect her and take care of her. And, of course, we find here, she says, will you take care of, the text says in verse 13, 
my mother and father and my siblings. She doesn't have children or a husband because she's a prostitute, but she's no mention of that in there. But there's a mention of her siblings and her parents. She said, please save my house. Please promise, give me some sort of sign. And of course, they do. They, they're, they're going to. And uh, they, they, they give her assurance. But notice it says, <clears throat> verse 15, and she let them down by a cord through a window. Uh, so they're 30 feet up and she's letting them down by a rope. That word cord is translated rope, that Hebrew word, in Samuel and King. So it wasn't just a little skinny piece. They had, it had to hold a man. So she has a rope and she's letting them down to the ground. And they're, they're communicating and she's still talking with them when they're down on the ground. And, and so he, this great escape here by them, uh, as you know, they lived on the top of walls. And so she's letting them down. In verse 17, and the men said to her, they're, they're, they're climbing on the wall and talking to her. I'd like to see this, you know. They said to her, we will be blameless in this thine oath. In other words, we're not going to mess up. We're not going to, the same word is used in Ezekiel about blood on your hands. We're not going to have blood on our hands, they said. We're, we're going to be blameless. You're not going to be able to uh, worry. We're going to keep our word to you to take care of you and your family. And so that gave her a lot of assurance, I'm sure, them promising her that. And uh, so they said here, behold, verse 8, a key verse here, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which thou lettest down by. So here's this red rope, and she said, take this, and we want you to put it around your window. When we come back, we can see that. Isn't that interesting? Now think about this for a minute. God destroyed this city, and he destroyed everything except this family. Every single person died. Every animal was killed as well. The only survivors were in Rahab's house. It's so similar to the scarlet, the crimson blood, same Hebrew word, by the way. In the Passover, they took that hyssop, and they smote the side post. And they smote the head post, the crown of thorns, the type of that. And that blood just poured down. And God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Now we have here God destroying the city. The walls just fall down. And everybody who lived on the wall or was under the wall was immediately killed. And then the armies defeated and killed everyone else. But think of this. When God saw the scarlet which is a type of the blood, he passed over, the death angel passed over and didn't harm Rahab and her family. It's just great stuff. I mean, I love this passage. And so here now, she's protected. She's protected. And, you know, you, you look at the word scarlet throughout Scripture. And you just follow uh, the blood through Scripture as well. You start with this, this scarlet line in Genesis 3.21. Adam and Eve had sinned. Adam and Eve had fallen, sinned, and they were naked. And now all of a sudden they're taking fig leaves to try and cover themselves up because they're embarrassed about their sin. They've been exposed. And God comes along and he kills some animals and he covers them in skins of animals. So he, he, he offers an offering. The Lord Jesus teaches them the importance of blood. 
and the covering of sin. So animals are killed and those skins are used to clothe them. So you have blood right in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And you can follow the scarlet blood, the blood all through the Old Testament, through the Passover. You think of the priestly garments with scarlet and the priestly offerings with scarlet and the tabernacle and all the scarlet there. And you find, of course, scarlet robe on the Lord Jesus. And you find scarlet in heaven. The word scarlet's a fascinating thing in Scripture. It's translated crimson as well in Jeremiah 4.30. The word scarlet in Isaiah 1.18 is translated worm in Psalm chapter 22. Worm, pastor? That's how it's translated. Go there. I was teaching this in a Bible class on college campus, and I was immediately, that right after class, I was called into the, the Bible chairman's office. He's a friend of mine. I preach for him sometimes. He said, give me this scarlet worm thing, this, the forgotten I am you talked about. And I said, well, that's, that's, I call it the forgotten I am. I don't think it's forgotten. But in Psalm 22, 6, now remember the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th Psalm, you study together. Because in the 22nd Psalm is a messianic, prophetic Psalm pointing to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. A thousand years before Jesus died, we have this wonderful psalm, you know, in all these different things in there about death, about the betrayal and the death of the Lord Jesus. Then in Psalm 23, so we have the good shepherd in Psalm 22. In Psalm 23, we have the, the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He lives to sustain us. And then in Psalm 24, the chief shepherd comes again. So, you, you know, that's, that's awesome stuff. But this is what we call a messianic psalm. It's talking about things that happened to the prophet, the psalmist, but there are also things that happened to the Lord. And, and so the, it's prophetic and it's messianic. And, and we know, of course, David's writing this. He had been a shepherd and he's talking about the Lord. And I'm in Proverbs. I don't know why I'm not in Psalms, but we'll find it in a minute. Bear with me. Uh, we'll blame it on... Uh, my old age. 22.6. And so, my God, my God, verse 1, why hast thou forsaken me? You see the prophetic implication there? And David is saying this. David's talking about being betrayed and then so forth. Verse 6. But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. I am a worm. I call this a forgotten I am. It's a title I gave it. But the great I am's of the New Testament, we think of all those. I am the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, I am the door, and all those I am's. Here's an Old Testament I am. He says, I am a worm. And this is the same Hebrew word translated crimson or scarlet in your Bible. Now, what's the significance of this, Pastor? Well, these little worms were used to make dye. And what color do you suppose the dye was? And when you killed one of these worms, if you killed one accidentally, you smashed it trying to gather it, it would stain that tree. A stain of scarlet, that bright red. Think of that. You with me? Think of that. What a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of that. He died on the cross and stained that old tree red. And his blood shed, shed on the cross is a remission for, of sins for all of us. And without the blood, there's no remission of sin. So here is a prophetic messianic psalm pointing ahead to the Lord Jesus. 
Hey, got one amen out of that. I'm glad for that. It's great stuff. I love the kids here. And one day we'll have a nursery. We'll miss them. They add a lot of excitement to the church. Last week we had one over here making noise. Hey, if it's real boring and the kids shout out, that's a sign that we're... No, I'm just kidding. We enjoy having the kids. Anyway, look back to our text now. And we have here uh, verse 19. And it shall be that whosoever shall go out of the doors of the house into the street, his blood shall be upon his head. So you've got to stay in your house. Same instructions as the Passover. Stay in your house. And when the death angel comes, you'll be protected. So here is Rahab. And she's protected. It was her obedience. Her obedience. Verse 21 and she said, according to your words, so be it. I mean, she was determined. Can you imagine her saying to her parents and her siblings, you know, you need to stay here tonight. You can't go out of the house. I wonder if some of them said, well, what are you talking about? What's going on? Well, I've had, I've had word from the men of God and God's going to take care of us. He's going to destroy the city. And they're thinking, Rahab, aren't you a harlot? And you're telling, you're preaching to us. I don't know. I'm, who knows what happened? But we could just imagine you know, what was going on in that household. But she gets them to stay, and they stay the night, and here the walls, after seven days, the walls just fall flat, and the, everyone's killed, everyone's dead, except Rahab and her family. You know, it's one thing to be saved and know you're part of the family of God. It's nothing to know your family's saved. You know, I'm blessed. I mean, I have just a great family. I've told people before, I pray for some of my cousins because I don't think they're living the way they should. And I, I pray if they're not saved, Lord, save them. But I have this family of, of uncles and aunts and my grandparents and my siblings and my kids and my grandkids all profess to know the Lord Jesus. I, I have that kind of a family. You know, my grandparents, all four, and then all my uncles and aunts profess Christ and all my cousins it's, it's unbelievable. I'm so blessed with that, I, that that I just can't praise them enough. I thank God for my heritage almost every day as I pray. In fact, you know, every time I go on my front porch, that's something I have to say, God, thank you. Thank you for that. That's eternal. And so I know some of you have lost loved ones, and that's just heart-wrenching, isn't it? So, so here, Rachel had the blessing of knowing that her siblings and parents are safe. And we know the rest of the story is also just as great. We go back to now to chapter six, chapter six, the verses we read in the beginning, chapter six, verse 17. We see here her reward. We've seen her faith. We've seen her works. She didn't just have faith. She acted on her faith. Could you imagine the, the, what's, how, her, how she must have felt when she knows if the people of that city find out that she's harbored these men and that they're going to be destroyed and she's helping the enemy, what would have happened to her? Well, you can read the history of the Canaanites and stuff we know about them. They were barbaric people. So she's, she's not only had faith, but she's had works. She's acted on her faith and done some extreme things to help the nation of Israel. Knowing her own friends and neighbors are going to be destroyed, but knowing there's one God, one God in all of Israel. She had faith. She had faith. The Old Testament saints were saved by believing a Messiah would one day come. They didn't know his name. They didn't know him personally. We are so blessed 
to be living after Calvary to be able to call out that lovely name. There's only one name under heaven whereby men can be saved. There's only one name. There's only one person, the Lord Jesus. But here we have this wonderful story in verse 17. And the city shall be. Now, in my Bible, I have a notation here. A guy by the name of Spiros Zodiades is a Greek scholar pointed out that these two words shall be are really rich in the Hebrew. And I studied them and that the same words translated to be and refer to Yahweh, the Lord to be. You know, he, the Lord has always existed. That's what this means. Jesus Christ didn't begin in Bethlehem. You know that. I had people from a cult come to our house and they were telling me that Jesus Christ you know, you don't find him in the Old Testament. And I'm thinking, these guys are blind to not see Jesus in the Old Testament. And they said, Jesus didn't begin to Bethlehem. And I said, well, what about Isaiah 9, 6? And their translation, which is corrupt, it's called the New World Translation. I said, let's look at Isaiah 9, 6. Well, they missed a spot. They didn't make all the corrections and changes. And I had my Bible as well. It says, for unto us a child is born, and he should be called the Everlasting Father. Now, I skipped several things. He's going to be called wonderful and all those things I skipped. But I got to the point, he's also the everlasting father. I said, you missed it. I said, Jesus Christ, there's a trinity. The three are one. They're three separate, but they're also one. And I said, you missed the trinity. And you missed Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And then I explained to him that Jehovah does say because Jehovah is Jesus Christ prior to him giving the name in the New Testament. And they're like, you know befuddled, I guess, or confused at what I just said to them. And I just hope the Lord saves them. It's been quite a while now. But I mean, our Old Testament is clear. The Messiah would come. While we're not given the name of Jesus until Bethlehem, we know he was prophesied and promised. Even we see today in Psalm 22 that he was promised. Well, anyway, we move on in this verse and it says, and the city shall be accursed. Accursed. This word is translated elsewhere, devoted devoted. God had set the city aside for destruction, but also for devotion. The theme and the idea of the first fruit is, first fruits is prevalent to the Old Testament. The first city that was destroyed would have to be burnt. The burnt offering didn't make sense to Eli and his sons, or Eli it did, but not to his sons. The burnt offering was wholly burnt up. You wouldn't eat any of the meat. It was burnt entirely, and the smoke would please God. The obedience would please God. And of course, we know Eli's sons ate of the offerings and didn't obey those commands. Here's a city God said to totally destroy it. And in verse 24 of our text, they burn it up. That would please God because it was the first city. The first city, everything went to God. The rest of the cities, they were told, you can take the spoils, but not this first one. That's why Achan was in big trouble. Because that city was consecrated, devoted, accursed, God was destroying that city and he was going to be honored and worshipped as a result of what he did there in defeating the enemy. And the enemy is, of course, a type of the devil. He's going to one day destroy him. So he says here that everything in this city except Rahab, she's going to live. Everything else is going to be destroyed and everyone else is going to die. And that's in the next several verses. But what did God want done with the spoils? Did he want him to take them? No. He'll let them do that in all the cities afterwards. But the first belonged to God. So they were supposed to burn it up. 
And what principle does that teach us that carries over in the New Testament? Our first fruits, right? A lot of people say, well, I'll give something to God at the end of the week if there's anything left. That's not what scripture teaches. Do you know everything you have belongs to God? Now, I don't think God wants this suit, but guess who gave it to me? God. You see, I mean, God doesn't need our stuff. But he wants us to be devoted. And, and we need to realize that everything in this world is accursed other than the children of God. Do you know the whole place is going to burn, Peter tells us? You know, and, and we sometimes lose sight of the fact that God is God alone and he has to have the preeminence. He has to have first place. Well, anyway, I've, I've gotten way off here. Verse 17, we find here clearly the mercy. She spared. She deserved hell like we do, but God spares her. And then we find the grace of God in verse 25, and we'll close in this verse. And Joshua and Rahab the harlot, a lie, saved them. And her father's household and all that she had dwelleth in Israel even to this day. So they moved into the, the city of Israel and they lived in Israel till the day they died. Till the day they died. And that is a picture of the grace of God. It's like when Mephibosheth, who didn't have legs and arms, sat at the king's table the rest of his life. They're given this grace. What a way to live, to live in Israel after the conquest the rest of your days. She had faith. She saw her faith come sight and she's a child of God. And guess what? We'll meet her in heaven. Do you know that? We'll, we'll meet her in heaven. So if God was great enough to offer a blood atonement for the Old Testament saints, the same God offered a blood atonement for the New Testament people. And not just for the Jews, but also for us. And we find that bloodline continues all the way through Calvary into 1 Peter and into heaven. We find the blood is consistent throughout Scripture. And he shed his blood for you. And if you're not a believer today, you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. Without what he did on Calvary, you'd go to hell. You'd have no hope, no opportunity, but God. But God commanded his love towards us in that while we're sins, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Lord, I know we're not deserving of your grace and mercy. We look at Rahab and think, well, she certainly wasn't deserving because she was a prostitute, but she received grace and mercy. And we deserve, we deserve hell for our sin. We're no better than Rahab, who is now a saint. Lord, we can be saints because of your blood. Bless us, Lord. Speak to hearts. Our altars are always open. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Y'all turn to page 300. We'll sing Have Thy Own Way.
today let's pray and we'll be dismissed Heavenly Father God I thank you for this wonderful message that you've delivered today I thank you Lord for this this pastor I know you're anointed that has delivered this message Father I pray for a hedge of protection around this church as we travel to and fro today Bring us back safely for this evening's service where we can continue, Lord, to worship You. I pray, God, that the Holy Spirit will draw lost souls to Jesus. And I pray that He will draw, draw the, law, the Christians to His service. Father, I thank You and I love You. And we all do, Lord. We all do love You and we try to serve You in our own way. May you be with us through this day. In Jesus' name, I do ask and pray. Amen.